It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 387 for April 6th, 2014. This week, you'll never have an excuse when you forget an appointment if you use Remember the Milk. Your internet service provider lets you use their server to send mail, but maybe you should be using the one from Gmail. In short circuits, an uncommonly convincing fraud showed up this week, and I'd like to show it to you. Apple and Samsung are in court, but they're talking about Google. The New York man who said he owned half of Facebook has been charged with fraud. Netflix heads for Europe. The European Union jumps ahead of the United States in net neutrality. And why you might want to consider a solid-state drive. A lot of stuff this week. Despite the funny name, Remember the Milk might be the best tool available to help you keep track of things you've promised to do. After using the free version of the application for about a year, I decided to pay the 25 bucks per year for the professional version because it adds features that I find to be well worth the small fee. Remember, the milk has been around since 2005. You can use it to manage your to-dos via the website or connect to it with Android, iOS, and BlackBerry apps. Remember, the milk runs on desktops, notebooks, tablets, and phones. It can be integrated with Gmail, Apple users can have Siri add tasks, and it synchronizes with Google Tasks, so everything you have scheduled will show up on your Google Calendar. Although most of the program's features are available for free, the $25 annual fee opens the door to what the developers call professional versions of their mobile apps and also adds Outlook task syncing. You can start each day with a list of tasks that are due and birthdays or anniversaries that are coming up, complete with priority listings, one through three, how long a task should take, whether it's repeated and on what schedule, and you can specify a category, a location, or even a URL. The task categories are represented by tabs, so you can view just your personal tasks, just your business tasks, just birthdays and anniversaries, or everything. And the names of the task categories are under your control. I'm particularly impressed by the repetition function. Remember the milk is able to understand something like tomorrow, 1500, every other Friday. Assuming you make the entry on Thursday, the event will be scheduled for 3 p.m. on Friday. You can use a.m. and p.m. if you don't like the 24-hour clock. And because I said every other Friday, it'll then be repeated at the same time every second Friday. The use of symbols to categorize bits of information when you type the task information might seem a little overwhelming for the first day or two, but it quickly becomes second nature. Here's an example. Type lunch with J, carrot, May 5, 1130, pound sign, personal, at sign, cafeteria, star, every month on the first Monday, equal sign, 90 minutes, exclamation point, 2. If you do that, you're going to schedule lunch with Jay on Monday, May 5th at 11.30 on your personal list in the cafeteria and allow 90 minutes for the event. You'll also repeat it every month on the first Monday and you'll set an importance level of 2. You can also fill all this in on a form, but typing is really a lot faster once you get used to it. But note that Remember the Milk doesn't always get things right. 
In this case, the repeating events were scheduled on the last Monday of every month, not the first Monday. I have talked to the developers about this, and they are working on it. Remember, the Milk allows users to link email accounts so that the program can send reminders. You choose the date and time format you prefer, the placement of tags, and whether you want to see the task cloud or not. One good security feature allows you to specify that Remember the Milk will always use a secure connection, that is HTTPS, instead of plain HTTP, when you connect using the web interface. I found the help features to be well-designed and comprehensive. Help topics, videos, forums, and email support are all available. As you use the application, come back to the help area from time to time and check the tips and tricks section. When you set the application up, you'll be provided an email address that you can use to import tasks and another email address you can use to import email addresses. Several other options are provided so you can share calendar and task information with friends. There's also a feature that integrates Remember the Milk with Google's Calendar. And if you enable pop-up reminders, the application will tell you when a task is due and you can have Remember the Milk send you reminders by email. Other options for reminders include most of the instant messaging services such as AIM, Google Talk, MSN, Skype, GaduGadu, ICQ, and Yahoo. Facebook is notably absent. You can also have Remember the Milk send you a reminder to your phone. Co-founders Emily Boyd and Omar Kalani refer to themselves as being hopelessly disorganized. They were fed up with constantly forgetting things, and yes, they say, including the milk. So they decided in 2004 to build a web app that would help them end their disorganized ways. It was launched in 2005. The Remember the Milk website says that apparently there are a lot of other disorganized people all over the world, and as a result, the application grew and eventually became more than just a web app. Today, Remember the Milk is available for all browsers, Android, iPhone, iPad, including support for Siri, BlackBerry, and there are extensions that allow it to work with applications such as Evernote, Gmail, Outlook, Twitter, Google Calendar, and more. The bottom line, four cats. If you ever forget a task, don't try to blame Remember the Milk. This is an application that missed a five-cat rating by just a whisker. The component that tries to convert plain language to a repetition schedule makes the right choices more times than it doesn't, but it still makes enough mistakes that users would be well-advised to double-check every entry. Except for that... This is one well-crafted application. The free version has a lot of features, but the paid version, just 25 bucks a year, unlocks more than enough features to be well worth the small cost. For more information, check out the Remember the Milk website. You'll find a link on the TechBiter Worldwide website. If you use an email account provided by your internet service provider, you might find it impossible to send email when you're traveling. That's because you won't be connected to the internet via your ISP. There's a better way and a more reliable way to send email. And it's not just for those who are blocked when they're on the road. My domains are hosted on a shared server at Bluehost in Orem, Utah. The service is reliable and the operators quickly remove spammers. But that doesn't mean that there aren't any on the system. 
Sometimes the IP address that belongs to the server my email originates from is listed on a blacklist. When this happens, messages are rejected. Although it doesn't happen very often, it happens enough to be frustrating. And although I have a Gmail account, I don't use it because I don't care for webmail interfaces. But Gmail can be made to work with standard email clients. Thunderbird, Eudora, Outlook, The Bat, for example. So, couldn't I just use the Bluehost POP3 server to receive my mail? And then use Gmail's SMTP server to send mail? The answer is yes. But it does require a little bit of work. The example images you'll see on the TechBiter Worldwide website are from the bat, but the same settings are available in all email programs. So you want to start by finding where your email program keeps its SMTP settings. These are the settings that tell the application which server it should use to send messages. The existing settings will look something like smtp.urisp.com. You need to modify this so that it points to Gmail's SMTP server, which, not surprisingly, is called smtp.gmail.com. Next, find a setting that deals with the connection or with security and set it to use TLS. TLS is a successor to the Secure Sockets layer and is composed of two layers, the TLS Record Protocol and the TLS Handshake Protocol. The TLS Record Protocol provides connection security with encryption. The existing port setting is probably going to be 25 or 26. You'll need to change that to 465. And then you need to separate the SMTP authentication process from the POP3 authentication process. Find the authentication area in the settings section. In the bad, it's a separate panel, but this varies a lot from one application to another. Typically, you'll need to select a setting that specifies explicit SMTP authentication. This setting might reference RFC 2554. Just enable the setting. Currently, your email program will probably be using the credentials that it uses to receive mail when sending mail. Select the option that tells the program to use different credentials when sending mail, and then fill in these two items. Your Gmail username, complete with the at gmail.com part, and your Gmail password. Your email program will now be able to receive mail sent to your normal address, but it will send mail via Gmail's server. There are two primary advantages of doing this. First, Gmail's SMTP server is available from any location on the Internet. And second, Gmail's IP addresses seem never to show up on blacklists. You should make one final addition before sending mail, though. Be sure that you fill in the Reply To entry in your email program. Most email programs leave this blank by default. You'll want your replies to your messages to come back to your regular email account and not be routed to Gmail. Filling in your standard email address will ensure that responses go where you want them to. You may encounter a small problem, though. When you send a message, Gmail will fill in your Gmail address in the from line. Even though responses will be sent to your regular email address because you filled in the reply to section, the presence of the Gmail address in the from line might confuse people. One very simple change will fix that. Just log on to your Gmail account, go to the settings panel. Your default email address will probably be the Gmail address. But you can change that to any other address simply by checking make default at the right of whatever address you have filled in. That will then be shown as your default. 
Note that when you use Gmail directly to send messages, those messages also will be sent showing your special address as the originating address. This all sounds a lot more complex and confusing than it really is. The instructions, complete with a lot of pictures, are all on the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. And after you've made the changes, your messages will be sent via the Gmail SMTP server, replies will come to your standard email address, and your standard email address will be shown as the originating address. Success! In short circuits, a most convincing fraud. Although most phishing schemes are obvious, the crooks who run these cons are getting better. Late this week, I received what looked a lot like a message from American Express. It purported to be promoting a new security feature. The explanation was clearly written, and it seemed plausible. It even explained that my browser would be redirected when I clicked the link provided by the message. Well, I didn't click. The message looked like it had originated at American Express. In part, it said, American Express uses 128-bit secure sockets layer technology. This means that when you are on our secured website, the data transferred between American Express and you is encrypted and cannot be viewed by any other party. The security of your personal information is of the utmost importance to American Express. Please click here to create your PSK, personal safe key. There was a comma splice in that last sentence, and I'm sure that American Express wouldn't send out a message that included something like that, but nonetheless, the message looked very convincing. Instead of clicking the link to create my personal safe key, I examined it. The destination was not an address that belongs to American Express. Gee, big surprise there. Then I noticed that the message was sent to McFarland. I don't know any McFarland. Certainly there is no McFarland at my domain, and the address used for this message was not the address I use for American Express. So the clues were there, and examining the routing headers would have made the ploy obvious. But the fraudsters are getting better. You can't be too careful. It's Apple versus Samsung in the courtroom. This should probably be about round 37. But much of the discussion this week was about Google. As you might recall from some of the countless other reports over the years, Apple and Samsung seem to like to sue each other. Perhaps they find this more entertaining than inventing hardware. This week, Samsung struck back at Apple using a somewhat different tactic, one we haven't heard before. Apple, according to Samsung, is terrified by losing market share in the smartphone marketplace. Android devices are currently by far the market leader, even though Apple largely invented the smartphone market in 2007. Apple, on the other hand, says Samsung is liable for more than $2 billion in damages as a result of patent violations that Apple says Samsung used in phones such as the Galaxy S3. Samsung's attorneys told the federal jury that's watching this latest skirmish that Apple has simply launched a holy war against Android and Google. Have I mentioned that Google is not represented in this case? To make that claim, Samsung's attorney John Quinn showed the jury a 2011 document from Steve Jobs promising exactly that. 
a holy war. Apple won an earlier round two years ago. A federal jury awarded almost $1 billion in damages to Apple, and Apple's lawyers repeated previous claims this time around. Apple has tried to reduce the impression that the battle is about Android, even though Samsung manufactures primarily Android-based phones. Don't expect this to end anytime soon. Well, as it turns out, a New York man doesn't own half of Facebook after all. Paul Seglia says he owns Facebook, or at least half of it, but a New York judge granted Mark Zuckerberg's motion this week to dismiss a suit by Seglia. It's been a year since a previous judge recommended terminating the suit because key parts of the contract the plaintiff presented had been faked. Seglia will be spending some time in court, though. He faces charges that are related to his suit. He has pleaded not guilty. Seglia claimed that he had a contract with Zuckerberg in 2003 that gave him half ownership of Facebook. Zuckerberg said, yeah, there was a contract, but it had no relationship to Facebook. Facebook's attorneys said that Seglia modified the contract by inserting passages relating to the social networking company. And this week's court decision officially ends Seglia's attempt to obtain half of Facebook. Netflix is heading for Europe. The company started hiring translators last year to localize its services in Europe. The company will soon begin offering streaming service in France, Netherlands, and Belgium. Future expansions apparently are planned for areas that are further east, because last year the company also hired translators who are fluent in Turkish, Korean, and Hindi. The streaming service to France will not originate in France, though, but from Luxembourg. By choosing to originate programs from outside France, Netflix is able to sidestep a law that would require the company to invest in French content and provide a certain amount of French content. France is particularly protective of its language. Previously, Google ran afoul of French laws, and Netflix is hoping to avoid that fate while still being able to provide services to users in France. The company's European headquarters were already in Luxembourg anyway. That's because of its friendlier tax laws. Netflix will start streaming video content to France in the fall and already provides some European services from Luxembourg. Looks like privacy and net neutrality are more hot-button issues in Europe than they are in the U.S. An article by James Ranter in the New York Times this week described a call by Peter Hustinks, the European Union's data protection supervisor, for member governments to update privacy laws by the end of the year to restore public trust in the Internet. Hustinks also said that President Obama needs to carry through on his pledge to review U.S. privacy policies. Cantor writes, and I quote, Legislation to revamp European digital privacy law has been in the work since November 2010, when the European Union's Justice Commissioner Vivian Redding first proposed updating rules set during the mid-1990s in the early part of the Internet era. She presented her version of the legislation in January of 2012. 
The New York Times article notes that separate legislation that's intended to provide equitable access for companies and consumers is now being considered by the European Parliament. And on Thursday, the European Union once again showed that it's willing to move ahead of the United States in the area known as net neutrality. The EU's Parliament voted in favor of robust rules that would promote more equal access to the Internet. Cantor says the European Parliament gave preliminary approval to a strengthened version of Reading's rules last month. The new version sets higher fines for inappropriate access to data belonging to Europeans. Some of those fines could be in the billions of dollars. Germany has taken the lead in privacy issues, Cantor writes, and Germans view their own laws as better than what the European Union is considering. The full article is available on the New York Times website. There's a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website. When buying a new computer, whether it's a desktop or a notebook, you really should consider a solid-state drive. Many notebook computers now come with solid-state drives, but the Lenovo that replaced an earlier, older Toshiba came with a hybrid 1TB hard drive. That's a standard drive with a lot more cache in it. and They say it emulates SSD-like performance. Well, it didn't. So I replaced the hybrid drive with a 500GB SSD. I had updated the hard drive in the Toshiba, and even though the Lenovo had a faster processor and more memory, it was crippled by a disk drive that, by comparison, was slow. Boot and program load times were simply unacceptable. But 500GB SSDs until recently were priced at about $1 per gigabyte, and I didn't want to spend that much. When I found that Amazon was selling a Samsung 500GB SSD for about half price, I stopped and looked. That's still expensive if you compare it to a standard drive. I mean, after all, some 3 terabyte drives are selling for around $100 now. But the price was low enough, and I had enough points set aside to cover most of the cost. Cloning the old drive to the new took about an hour. Then came the complicated part, removing the bottom cover from the Lenovo notebook. Fortunately, a YouTube video showed which nine screws needed to be removed, and once I had removed them, how to pry the case open without doing any damage. After popping the old drive out and putting the new drive in, I replaced the bottom cover, replaced all nine screws, and then powered the system back on. I did think about the danger of tempting fate by doing that. Typically, you want to test things before you put it all back together, but everything worked as expected. Boot time is now about 12 seconds instead of 2 minutes. Oh, and by the way, I spent another 9 bucks to buy a case for the old 1 terabyte drive. I've hooked it up as an external drive on the system. Happiness is a fast computer. <laughs> Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the weekly podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. All music on TechBiter Worldwide is licensed under the Creative Commons, and information about performers is on the website, www.techbiter.com. I'm Bill Blinn, and if you'd like, you can also send me a message from the website. Thanks for listening. I look forward to talking with you again in a week.